Hello and welcome to another episode of The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. Today's episode is an interview and discussion I had with Derek Barris, one of the three co-hosts of the Conspirituality Podcast. Derek offers a lot in this world of um, conspirituality. He and his other two co-hosts really do get to the bottom of uh, what is going on in the wellness space that seems a little confounding and confusing to a lot of us. This is probably one of the hardest episodes I've done um, and one of the hardest interviews I have been a part of. Derek and, and the other guys over at Conspirituality really do say that they, their intention is to elicit an emotional response in their listeners. And I will say I absolutely <laughs> have emotional responses when I listen to their podcast and even in this interview with Derek where we disagree on ch- traditional Chinese medicine, which you all know is something very dear to my heart. So this may not be the most eloquent I have ever been in an interview or sound as educated as I would like to sound, but um, I'm putting it out anyway. There's really no reason to hide from these unpleasant or difficult conversations, and I really do honor the time that Derek spent with me, and so here's the episode. I really hope you enjoy it and would love your feedback on... um, on either my podcast, Conspirituality, anything we discuss in this podcast, or anything you feel inspired to share. So without further ado, here's my interview with Derek Barris. Today I interviewed Derek Barris. Derek Barris is a multifaceted author, media expert, and movement instructor based in Los Angeles. He is the head of content marketing and community at Centered, as well as a columnist for Big Think and Psychedelic Spotlight. One half of Earthrise Sound System, he also served as music supervisor for the breakthrough documentary DMT, The Spirit Molecule. He is a co-host of the Conspirituality Podcast, and his new book, Hero's Dose, The Case for Psychedelics and Ritual and Therapy, is out now. Welcome to the Herb Walk podcast, Derek. I'm so glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me, Jessica. Um, so would you start by telling the listeners a little about yourself? You know, we have your bio, but if there's something you would like for us to know about you, um, please share it with us. I... I not always the best at at self-description. I guess what I can say is that my hopes with the podcast specifically, having worked in the broader so-called wellness space uh, as a yoga instructor and as a journalist and author for decades now is to really just create critical thinking uh, conversations around critical thinking about some of the things that we're saying and doing, because what we've noticed at conspirituality is that a lot of times people confuse spiritual rhetoric around 
um, you know, sort of uh, these ideas of, of people coming together in community when really it's, it's a lot of ego that's happening. So I think that uh, the work is done in hopes that people can just become better thinkers and better people and actually create solutions that help the broadest number of people and don't just create downlines for the supplements they're selling or whatever other misinformation they might be peddling. Uh, so I would say that that kind of cuts through uh, all of my work, whether it's writing, podcasting, or even movement in general, because I'm a lifelong movement practitioner. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ideas in the broader yoga space that aren't always the best for people's bodies. So I think that what I've tried to do throughout my career is just think, think about what I'm saying and how I'm moving and then try to inspire people to do that, do that in their own lives as well. Thank you for saying that. Um, very important. You know, we spoke a little bit about, you know, how much I'd like the conspirituality podcast, but how hard it is to listen to sometimes because it, you know, I have friends that are on the other side of the fence, so it makes it really hard. But what you said about having conversations around critical thinking and also being able to check the ego, I think is so important um, because I lose myself in that. So I appreciate you saying that and, you know, all the work that you're doing. Uh, the bulk of what I want to talk about is the podcast, but um, for my own curiosity, um, I was curious what flow play is. I know it is a movement therapy that you developed some time ago. Is it something that you still practice or teach or is that, um, you know, have you kind of moved on from that? Evolved. I want to entertain one thing you said before you got into that question and then move on to that because I think it's really important, especially at the outset of an interview like this, is that when you mentioned some discomfort from the podcast, that's a good thing, right? And what I've expressed often is that my best friends challenge me. Uh, they call me out on bullshit if I if I'm peddling it. Like if if I say something that they don't agree with, they don't just go along with it. They say, "Hey, let's talk about this." Uh, the same with my wife. And that's why we have a very I consider strong relationship. Like the people closest to me are able to be challenged and challenge me with everything. And I think that is why they're so close because there's no there's no kowtowing. There's no reverence. There's, there's a deep respect and love for the person and the love encapsulates all of that. It doesn't just, it doesn't just feed the ego of the people you want to be around. It actually helps them become better people. So, and that's really hard to get across in, in this format, in, in anything digital, because I've said this for a long time on the podcast that these conversations that Matthew, Julian, and myself are having, if other people in the room who maybe don't agree with us, and this is evidenced by our weekly clubhouse that I run on Sundays, is that people who challenge me, we have very good dialogues because there's an understanding, there's a, there, there's a human at the other end of that microphone. But it becomes harder when you're consuming, say, a podcast and you have ideas, but you don't have an outlet for it. So it turns into anger or, or being upset or just not really hearing what the person is saying because you don't have that eye-to-eye -eye contact that's so important to us as a species. 
So I just wanted to point that out because if people, I've lost some friends over this past year, I've lost some friends over the course of my life because of my beliefs. And usually it happens through digital means. It doesn't happen face to face. And I think that's a real loss. And, you know, as much as I love technology, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, what it, all of the advantages of these mechanisms we have technologically, there is costs and consequences to them. And I think that is one of the costs, unfortunately. So I just wanted to make that clear because you did mention it with your own friends. And I hope that um, if some of them are upset by some of the things that are going to happen on this podcast, it can at least create fruitful dialogue among you and your friends. Um, so with Flowplay, I, I, I started teaching at Equinox in 2003, and I did up until the pandemic. So it's a year ago this week, I stopped teaching there. Uh, you know, no one teaches there at the moment in Los Angeles. But the woman who hired me, LaShawn Dale, who remains a friend, and I've worked on with her on other projects since, uh, she noticed very early in my career after she hired me that I was both creative from a movement perspective, but also creative musically. I was a world music journalist for a long time. And, and I was, a, I, when I left being an editor at a world music magazine, I went into teaching movement. So immediately all of this incredible music that I've acquired over the course of my life was, I was able to put into my classes. And uh, over time, we just kept the dialogue up because it was just, you know, not a lot of Americans know that much about international music. It is what it is, but I, my life was steeped in it for, for years and flow play kind of grew out of that where I, it was the intersection of the music, the movement. And then as a writer and journalist, I had started moving into writing about neuroscience and became fascinated with neuroscience and have continued writing as a health and science journalist uh, at big think for a decade now. And at the time we started it, it was just a, a Equinox, like a lot of fitness, larger fitness centers, they roll out custom classes. And it was one of those. And myself and my friend, Philip Steer, who's a music producer, and he would DJ my classes often at a, at a local studio in Santa Monica called Yogi's Anonymous. Every Friday night, we had a DJ class. And so we started doing these at Equinox as well. And what grew out of that was a two-year program where... I traveled with Philip around the country to all the different uh, regions that Equinox is in. And I taught a few hundred different yoga instructors about how music and movement affect neurochemistry and why it's important to play certain forms of music at certain times during the class. Because I had been in classes where people would, teachers would play music with lyrics and a beat during Shavasana, which is the antithesis of moving someone into their parasympathetic nervous system. So, or, in, or they would play very slow music during heavy flows, or they play very fast music when you were supposed to be more meditative. And so we just created this training program to say music has an effect on your physiology. So if you're trying to teach one thing from a movement perspective, but the music is doing something different, then you're actually confusing people and you're not going to accomplish what you're trying to do from a perspective of yoga, from whatever you were doing at that moment physically. Um, so we, every month we supplied, uh, probably we trained 50 to 60 instructors, ended up becoming flow play instructors at Equinox. 
and we would supply a monthly playlist. We'd pick a theme and then we'd, we'd just write up something about the neuroscience behind it, uh, along with the, what we knew about uh, the music science. Uh, and so that uh, no longer exists. I mean, the program, a lot of custom programs have a shelf life and that did, but it just really took all of my passions, which is, which is science, which is music, which is movement and put them together in one thing. And it, while that no longer exists, uh, I currently work full-time for a startup called Centered, which is a, which is a technology that helps people to get into flow states. And I'm the head of content and marketing over there. So you can say that all of that knowledge that I had acquired for those years of study and running programs like that helped to create this position where I'm at now. Just like how life is, right? One thing always leads to another and then all of your passions come together and your talents and then um, you end up somewhere you never thought you were going to be. Um, that's the story of my life. Yes. <laughs> I feel like that's just the story of life, you know, yeah, especially yeah. if you're open to, um, you know, wanting to experience more of life, you know, and if you don't, that's no judgment. Just, you know, I feel like some of us want to expand our minds as much as possible, which is something that I do want to talk about later. But what you were, but what you mentioned about flow pay, flow play, um, where music affects physiology, you know, immediately, of course, I start thinking about Icaros and how, um, I've only experienced ayahuasca in Peru in like a traditional ceremony, you know, as traditional as you get with the fact that, you know, I flew there from <laughs> wherever I flew from and all of that. Um, but I think about the Icaros and I've heard of my, my friends doing ceremonies here in the States where they're like, oh yeah, this guy's like playing, you know, folk songs on the guitar. And like immediately I cringe and I'm thinking, how, how, how is that? does that put you in the same like physiological state as hearing a Shipibo person, you know, a shaman singing Icaros to you directly? Um, and so that's just where my mind immediately went. <laughs> the physiology well, of hearing shaman singing to you in an ancient language, as opposed to a hippie, like strumming the guitar singing, <laughs> you know, Neil Young. And I love Neil Young, but I don't think I want to hear Neil Young on ayahuasca or maybe I do. And I just haven't experienced it yet. You know? Yeah. That's, that's where I land with it because I've only done uh, ceremony in the Shipibo tradition with the Icaros and, uh, and it, it's extremely powerful uh, on many levels. The other tradition, which whose name's escaping me is the one you're describing where instead of an overnight ceremony in the dark, it's all, light, you're all standing, you're singing. And I will say that the one peyote ceremony I did was more like that. And I didn't enjoy it. I really didn't like being in a fully lit room with people who were moving and talking and awake. And, and that, that didn't appeal to my sensibilities. In fact, I received double the peyote that evening than anyone else in the room, even though it was my first time. And it really didn't affect me until I left the room and went back to my room to go to bed. <laughs> and that's when it all hit me. So the environment matters, you know? So I, I am a fan of the Shipibo tradition personally, but I'm, I'm open to anything in that world, uh, you know, within limits. Right, right. Uh, you know, I, I would love to think I am a little bit more open, but I still have a judgmental side and I'm just not quite ready to do it in the United States <laughs> in a setting like that, you know, and maybe that's like my privilege because I could go to Peru and do it, you know, and so I, I definitely I'll, recognize I'll that. I'll tell you, though, you know, the first time I ever did it was in a, an apartment in Harlem. 
and it was unbelievable. And interestingly, the first time I ever did a sweat lodge was at a, a, a public park in the Bronx, right next to a, uh, a barber shop. And, and also incredible experience. So I think the people with your with and the environment you create uh, is very helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I do agree with that. Um, and I was going to talk about your book last, but I feel like we're on the, t- on the subject. So I'm just going to go with it. Um, in your book, Heroes Dose, the case uh, for psychedelics and ritual and therapy, um, you definitely talk a lot about that, about being with the right people in the right setting and, you know, doing entheogens and psychedelics and, you know, in ceremony and in party situations, um, set and setting and ritual is kind of everything, you know, one bad vibe can set off your entire night, you know? Um, and so I guess, I guess my question about the book is, you know, you, you briefly, or the whole thing really is you're talking about how to bring ritual into therapy. You mentioned some ketamine studies that truth be told, I did not read your entire book, but I did read a lot of it. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Cause I was curious because it almost seemed like there was something lacking or in the ketamine studies that, but I wasn't sure exactly what you were talking about. Yeah, sure. So history, you know, repeats itself in many ways. And it's something that I've thought a lot about reading up to the book. And since the publication of the book, especially with all of the money that's flowing into psychedelics right now and people like Peter Thiel, who are putting tens of millions of dollars into this industry, they're going to expect a return on investment. And that means that they're going to have to monetize these substances in some capacity. And I can already see a few of the ways they're trying to do it. And the thing you'll know about psychedelics is you don't do them all the time. Like I haven't, I haven't done any since the pandemic started. It's been a year and three months. And usually I like to do it twice a year, but they're not things that I, you're, you're called to because it's, it's not, they don't create dependencies like say benzodiazepines or SSRIs, which which are what are the current ways that we predominantly treat mental health issues. And so I, I wanna give a, a historical example to kind of frame the ketamine trials because this is what I meant by history repeating itself. When Xanax was first approved by the FDA, what happened was the company that Uh, ran the trials, they did a 14 week study. And so to get approved by FDA, FDA, you have to, you have to show two trials that perform better than placebo. And so one of the trials was a 14 week study. And at four weeks, Xanax was outperforming placebo by, by healthy margin. But at eight weeks, they were even. And then at 14 weeks, the placebo was well outperforming Xanax. So what did the company do? They submitted the data to the FDA only showing the four week results. And so Xanax is legal for, it's supposed to only be used for short term usage, that's it. But people have been on it for years and decades because it creates a dependency. And I'm speaking as someone who suffered from anxiety disorder for a long time and was on Xanax. So I have some personal history with that. Although I never fortunately became dependent on it and I was able to cut it off when I wanted to. 
Now, that just shows you the problems that we have with the um, clinical trials and the pipeline that pharmaceuticals get. And, and to be clear, pharmaceutical testing costs hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's not like it's not like there aren't guardrails. There are guardrails, but they, but there's also too much wiggle room in a lot of ways. And so you go to ketamine, which out of all of my earlier experimenting was the most troublesome substance I had ever tried, you know, recreationally. So I understand that dosage matters and that, you know what, if a little bit will help, I'm all for it. And I, I had written favor, favorably about early ketamine trials like five years ago, because I was excited that these substances were being taken seriously uh, by medical researchers. But ketamine, first of all, isn't a psychedelic. And it kind of got thrown in there because recreational users of psychedelics often experiment with ketamine as well. But it's not, uh, it, it doesn't work in the same way. And so first off, that's kind of a red flag to me that these psychedelics companies are leaning on ketamine because it was the first to be approved. And they're going that route and they're confusing what the traditional psychedelics are with this other substance. And that, that's the first problem. But specifically to the ketamine trials, the, uh, I, I'm not remembering the exact numbers, so I'm not going to talk in numbers. But a few people who were on ketamine and then went off of it committed suicide shortly after. And the drug company submitted that as proof that their underlying condition caused the suicide when before they got into the trial, they, were, they had never had suicidal ideation. It only happened after they got on ketamine and then were cut off during the trial. And so there were real problems with the way the data was submitted. So they were able to, so I had mentioned that there were two trials that had to show efficacy above placebo. The problem is they didn't actually do that with ketamine. They only showed one trial. And then I, again, I'm forgetting the name, but there is another way they can get around submitting that other study. And they did that. And now it's legal and clinics all over North America are, you know, gaining, uh, gaining a lot of, traction with this. And again, if it's working for people, that is great. And I, I don't want to cut off any therapeutics because if it shows efficacy, it shows efficacy and it should be studied and it should be used. The problem is ketamine has a lot of side effects and we're kind of just like we've been doing with antidepressants for the last 40 years, we're just kind of brushing those aside and rushing into these uh, clinics and charging a lot of money to people. And this is how psychedelics companies are monetizing right now. And that, that to me is really troublesome. Yeah, I agree. Um, I have been curious about how ketamine was the one that has become the most accepted. So I appreciate you explaining that a little bit to me. Now it makes sense. It's like, oh yeah, they love things that cause homicidal and suicidal behavior and ideation. So of course this is one that they would pick up on and be okay with. Um, well, ketamine, I mean, ketamine, so ketamine had a lot of, it's a tranquilizer and it's a sedative. Yeah. And, I mean, that's what I remember. People that worked at our vets clinics would like, you know, bring it home and then we would do it for fun. Although I never thought it was fun. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was never my cup of tea, but I remember it being everyone joking that it was a tranquilizer and 
And um, the first tranquilizers in the, that were used in the 1940s would come from textile dyes. And what happened were textile dye workers, they noticed that they were, the workers were experiencing some weird effects. And so, I mean, that's the history of pharmacology is, is that something you think it's going to work for something. And then it turns out working for something else. And it's, it's a slow process. Uh, and I'm, I'm a fan of the process because, you know, pharmacology and, and has a lot of good utility for people, but not in the ways that we're monetizing it when, when companies are making billions of dollars and not really learning about the long time effects. It's really problematic to me. Yeah, that's the disconnect of the poor, the for profit healthcare system is illness over wellness because wellness, I mean, I guess this, the quote unquote wellness industry has proven you can make millions and billions, billions <laughs> of wellness. But um, I guess that our, our healthcare system thought that illness, you know, paid off in the long run for, for a multitude of reasons. Um, so what really prompted you to write the book? Was it just that you had a burning desire to tell your stories of, you know, youthful, of drug use, or was it really to bring attention to the fact that we do need to have psychedelics blended in with the ther with modern day therapy? Well, I don't. I have never been much of a fan. Uh, I actually, I shouldn't say that. I've been a fan of memoir writing. I just never wrote m as a memoir of, for myself because I just didn't think it was that interesting and. But the, the funny thing is I love people's memoirs and I've read a number of them. And then I read Mary Carr's book, uh, The Art of Memoir, which really inspired me to write this book. And initially I was going to just write a memoir about my experiences. But as a writer, I'm trained as a journalist and I've done that for a long time. So as I started writing, I just... I didn't want to write about myself the whole time. And I wanted to, if, if, if I'm going to tell my story, it has to, it has to push forward some sort of cultural conversation in some capacity. And with the ways that psychedelics are now being used in therapy or being tested at least uh, it was just a good time because in the nineties, you know, you didn't, you didn't go publicly talking about your psychedelic use. I mean, among your friends maybe, but that was it. And even in the aughts, you really didn't. I, I had written a few blog posts, maybe, almost 20 years ago about it. And even then I was really worried about putting that out in the world, but now it's, it's, a, it's just a different environment. And so what I realized early on is if that, I was making the case for psychedelics to be used in mental health treatment that I, then I really had to talk about why our current mental health treatments aren't working. And so that's why I spent a portion of the book talking about the history of pharmacology and the history of medicine and how it led to modern pharmacology. Because if you don't know the origin stories, then you're not really going to understand how, how things appear. I mean, this is something we do on the podcast with QAnon. Like QAnon has been around since 2017, but most people didn't know about it until last year for a number of reasons. But knowing where it comes from is very important in general. And so that's, that's why I took the, the approach I did with the book where it's sort of, I would say two thirds journalism talking about pharmacology, mental health and psychedelic therapy. And then a third memoir where I get to talk about how it affected my own life and how it changed my point of view on a lot of things. And I have definitely been enjoying it. I've been kind of skipping chapters based on the name of the chapter. 
Um, so of course I had to read Solvine first and well, no, I read the first chapter first and then Solvine and I really liked placebo matters because I am a huge proponent of the placebo effect because I know how powerful it is. Um, so just thank you for writing the book. It is the first book I have read that has been current in terms of being able to talk about what's going on in 2020, which was, you know, such a hard year for, for most of us. And so it's kind of been that reminder of, you know, why I love psychedelics so much also with just making it really relevant for what's going on today. So thank you for writing it. I hope, um, you know, I hope a lot of people read it and get, and get something out of it because I know that I am. Thank you. I appreciate that. So really, the reason why I wanted to interview you is because of your Conspirituality podcast. And so for those who don't know about it, um, from your website, I'm just going to read really quickly um, what it means or or how you describe the podcast. And then I'm going to have you kind of um, put it more into layman's terms for those of us who who may not know um, some of these words. Like I'm thinking about my mom who might be listening. Um, Conspirituality podcast attempts to bring understanding to the landscape of converging right-wing conspiracy theories and faux progressive wellness utopianism. A journalist, a cult researcher, and a philosophical skeptic discuss the stories, cognitive dissonances, and cultic dynamics tearing through the yoga, wellness, and new spirituality worlds. Mainstream outlets have noticed the problem. We crowdsource, research, analyze, and dream answers to it. So, faux progressive wellness utopianism. What exactly does that mean um, to you and Matthew and um, Julian? Well, I'll speak for myself. You know, the one thing I like about working with them, I mean, we, we come together on a lot of points, but I don't ever try to speak for them because we do diverge in certain ways. Uh, from one example that we can, you know, kind of continue the conversation from a pharmacology into supplements, whereas pharmaceuticals are rigorously studied, even though there are some holes, as I mentioned, uh, supplements are not. You can make pretty much any claim about a supplement put in very small print, this has not been approved, and then you can sell it. And a lot of the wellness influencers we cover, they make their living on their downlines. So they're they're getting codes from companies to promote supplements, and they're talking about whatever, whatever the supplement claims to do, and they're selling it to their people. And that, that kind of highlights where this intersection happens with um, the pandemic. And one of the founding reasons of why we really started talking about uh, what we talk about and why we formed the podcast, because if you're someone who works in the wellness space and, you know, maybe you teach yoga or you, you know, massage therapy, whatever it is, you you work with people hands-on in some capacity. And then all of a sudden your source of income is gone. And so you know, you can no longer teach publicly, you can no longer massage people, whatever that is. And you also have these deals, these affiliate deals with these companies. Well, it makes sense that as the pandemic started, you saw a lot of these influencers become anti-vaccination, anti-masking. COVID is a hoax. COVID is just a flu. 
And guess what? These products I have, they're going to help your immune system. So you won't ever really need to worry about COVID. So we're going to sell you this. And you can see where the utopian ideology comes in this idea that I am a sovereign being, I eat organic, I eat well, I'm think holistically, I only buy these products. And, you know, one of the influencers we cover often, I, I remember recently, she said that cancer will never touch me because I don't vibrate on that energy. And this is the mindset that these people take. And they're, they're presenting this very utopian vision. And you mentioned earlier about like the, the, you know, being able to fly down to Peru and there's a sense of privilege. These wellness influencers have levels of privilege that are unchecked and they create this, this mythos around them and they're, they're perfectly sovereign immune systems. And so the conspiracy theories and the supplements and, and the lifestyle in general, not just supplements, the lifestyle in general of being this, I take care of myself and therefore I'm protected, that ideology, that had been building in wellness I, I for a long time. I mean, for a very long time, but I always point to the really when Instagram yoga took off as indicative of that trend, because it was kind of like giving steroids to something that was already happening. So you see that these, these life flexible bendy yogis are doing these postures on beaches or mountaintops. And then right below their mat is whatever supplement they're showing for at the moment saying how that allows them to be that flexible and things like that. Um, and so while the convergence of right-wing conspiracy theories and the wellness community seems from afar like that could never happen, that is exactly how it happened. You, you just had this, this perfect storm of forces that came together and wellness people in America tend to be politically disconnected and that didn't help either. And so if your only source of news or information comes from your Instagram feed and the influencers you follow, then you're, you're not going to be prepared for the hard work of living in a society during a pandemic. And I think those are all reasons why this upswell happened in terms of what we call uh, conspirituality. Yeah. You know, as soon as Instagram came out and, um, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a marketing, I'm in like a mastermind group, whatever the, the heck these people, you know, that, that, that they're called. And I really admire everyone in there because they're great business people. Um, but I've definitely noticed that the bottom, you know, the bottom line is the affiliate marketing and the selling of, you know, supplements, you know, collagen, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And it's bothered me for a really long time without really understanding um, not the depth of how sinister it is. Cause it's not like, you know, it's an evil cabal or anything, but there is a sinisterness to it where it is um, very, as long as I'm healthy and I'm beautiful and I'm thin, then it doesn't really matter what's going on in the rest of the world. And well, that's always been politically active. You hitting on the point that a lot of these spiritual people do stay away from politics because you know, it's not in their vibrational field. Um, it's so problematic. And I, and I guess just the, how bad that is has really just hit me over the last year. 
Um, and your podcast, I don't know if it's helped me or hurt me <laughs> because I'm like, yes, of course, this is what we're all thinking. And then I'm like, oh no, this isn't not, this isn't what we're all thinking. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'll just say that one thing I point out to Matthew and Julian often is that you know, we get, we get a lot of positive commentary. We get a ton of negative commentary. And I said, you know what, we're, we're inspiring emotion in people. And that's the most you can do, whether or not you agree with us. And again, anyone who doesn't agree, I, I invite you to state your points. And, and sometimes they turn into really good debates. Uh, I have some listeners who come on a clubhouse and don't agree with us. And we have really good conversations. And we, we, you know, we just talk. And that's really good. It's, the, it's, it's when people are like, you know, this is BS. We just, you're just wrong. And without actually picking out the points and then trying to counter them with good information. That's, that's one of the toxic aspects of social media that I can't stand, but I will point your, your listeners to a book called clean by James Hamblin, which came out last year. James Hamblin is a doctor and he was the, um, a lead editor at the Atlantic for a long time and ran uh, the Atlantic's uh, medical podcast. And he specifically, it's talking about, um, why he doesn't, he didn't use soap for a number of years, for example, but he also, he brings up collagen, which is a good one because that's a very popular supplement right now. And he, he points out the fact that if you're putting collagen in your smoothie, it never actually reaches your skin. It gets broken down in your digestive system and exits you. And so that's just such a good example of one of the grifts that are out there. This idea that you can just put something in a smoothie and it's going to have all these wonderful effects when it, actually, when you actually look at what it does it's usually nothing like so much out there. It's the placebo. It makes you feel like it's working. Um, one thing you touched on that really bothers me is that term sovereign being or free person. Do you know the origins? This is my lack of wanting to even research. So I apologize if I'm just asking you random questions, but when did this term sovereign being for these wellness influencers come about? Because I've recently just started hearing it a couple months ago and people that I know I'm starting to hear it out of their mouths. And, you know, someone I'm like, you guys are like white people. I've, I've only used, I've only heard the word sovereign being used for like a sovereign nation for native Americans. Is there some sort of, um, is there a reason behind why they're using this word sovereign? Well, it is a political term. I think Matthew would be better equipped for the history of that. I mean, we all have, you know, different roles on the podcast, so I don't know the exact origins. Uh, he caught on to that very early and really explored that in the early episodes. But you're right. It is a political term initially. And if you look, it really became popular uh, during pandemic when that was released. And that's when the term sovereignty took off like a juggernaut in the wellness space. And you also will notice that it particularly resonates with the crowd in Texas, specifically Austin, those influencers. <laughs> yes, those, <it> does. <laughs> yeah. Those influencers used it a lot. And, and so if you think about just Texas's attitude uh, in general, I shouldn't say that the P a lot of the people who live in Texas is a better way to state it. Um, but their political attitude, and you can see where it crumbles. I mean, a few weeks ago, uh, one of the one of the co-founders of the company that I, I work for uh, lives in Austin now, and because his father lives there, and moved moved back there, and you know, I, I experienced the power outages through him because he was on Zoom calls every day, like in hotels, because 
everything fell apart. And so the, the, and I bring that up because the disconnect between the idea of sovereignty, but the fact that humans are interdependent animals and we rely on each other, it, it, it somehow escapes people over and over, especially people I find who use terms like sovereignty to describe themselves and their take on life. And all you need is a natural disaster to show people how dependent we are on one another. And I really wish that we'd remember that when times are good and you don't have to wait for a disaster <laughs> to rely on help from other people. But we don't, we don't seem capable uh, on a large scale of doing that. Yeah, no, it's really, it's just been really surprising to me. Maybe, it, you know, part of it is I feel like this pandemic really, um, everyone kind of started vomiting their trauma on social media. And I don't think that was good because we were all trying to process what was going on. And of course, our deepest, darkest fears come out. And I feel like it brought out a lot of, I don't want to call it ugliness in people, but, you know, when it comes down to, survival we see you know the level of yes are people coming together to work for their community or are they hoarding resources resources and just thinking about you know themselves and maybe their family and you know their small little community um and then of course unfortunately all of you know george floyd was murdered and then it once again arose people to a community-minded I felt like for a minute there was community and now it's back to, am I going to survive this instead of, are we going to thrive in this, you know, which is in wellness, I would hope we would all want to thrive together, but we're, I'm just not really seeing that. And, you know, a little disheartening, um, but, you know, we just have to adapt and figure out how we can, you know, make this a better place for all of us and not just worry about, um, how long we're going to have to wear a damn mask. You know, it's like, if that's the least of our worries, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm fine with wearing a mask. Um, but it's, it's just, it's very interesting place where the, where, where the wellness world is. Um, and even this wellness industry, you know, like we call it the cannabis industry now. And that term alone just is a disconnect from community and nature and everything else. I feel like, um, at least in my personal and professional life have kind of been striving towards. So. Well, cannabis also provides a cautionary tale for psychedelics. I feel to go back to our earlier conversation in that when talk about one of the ways that it's been monetized is through CBD and, and talk again about another example of placebo effect. I mean, if you're buying a $10 CBD enhanced coffee that has five milligrams of CBD in it, because you think it's doing something magical, you're, you're just getting caffeine. Um, and there has been a number of studies on CBD and most of them show efficacy around 400 milligrams. And that's great. That's very important for people dealing with things like epilepsy, for example. And if, if it was shown to have efficacy at low levels, which is in most of the tinctures that people are buying at like 10 milligrams, that would be nice, but there's been no evidence for that yet. And I feel like what, what happened with cannabis and the ways it's been monetized and how people who, who had no skin in the game just jumped in and started monetizing it very quickly, uh, for, for those of us who've been advocates for, for many decades, uh, it's 
you know, it's just kind of gross. I, I can't really think, I mean, we, we're a capitalist society, so I understand that's how I operate, but it's hard to tolerate. And I feel that the same thing is going to happen with psychedelics, specifically this notion of microdosing for productivity. Like that's- once Work it becomes, harder, work faster. Yeah, once it becomes- Don't get legal, high. Once it becomes legal, it's just, it's going, I mean, that's going to be one of the tracks it takes for to monetize. And, and again, it's just really, really unfortunate. Well, yeah, you have to get people taking it every day, like you said, and not just two times a year, you know? Um, yeah. I have a couple things to say about the CBD world, and that is, um, one, we call it the hand job of cannabis because it's like you don't want to go all the way. You're a little scared to, like, jump in and be with ganja, but, like, CBD is okay because you don't really have to get dirty. <laughs> um, so that's – I say that a lot. I'm like, oh, yeah, CBD is the hand job of weed. And then uh, green greed, you know, it, we people call it the green rush. I just call it the green greed. It's like, yeah, how can we make money off a constituent? Again, that isn't going to really elevate the person or enhance their life in any significant way, but we're going to like, you know, convince them that it is and charge 60 to $80 for a one or two ounce bottle. And, you know, I wish I had something in me that would wanted to sell somebody a CBD product. I just don't, <laughs> you know, it makes, I just, I'm not that kind of person, you know? Um, but if that's your thing, I'm totally for it, you know? Um, but I do, I just, I, I find it to be a little like lazy way to get into cannabis, you know? Like inopportunistic. I, I, again, especially since it's well known that any effects that CBD have are enhanced by THC. So if you're just stripping that out and you know what, I, I have friends who cannabis isn't for them. It sets off their nervous system. They don't like the feeling fine. Then that's totally, that's totally fine. And if, if the, if some of the products that are non-psychoactive work for you, again, probably placebo, but I'm not against that, but it's, it, it is that, that the amount of money that people are making from something uh, to the degree that it happens so quickly and how many companies failed because they, it was just a gold rush mentality. I, again, two years down the line, you're going to see the same thing happen with psychedelics. And it's, we're, we're just going to keep repeating this story. Absolutely. I mean, and it makes me think that maybe that's why ketamine was also the one that's the most recognized right now because it isn't psychoactive. And so um, you know, again, we don't have to really work on enhancing people with the with, with entheogens or with you know man-made substances like LSD or ecstasy that would maybe give us some sort of um, you know cerebral enhance it enhancement and thinking outside of the box. Right. Well, to be fair though, with ketamine, I mean, ketamine like MDMA and like uh, psilocybin, it has been tested for a long time. So it what happened was it was just showing efficacy early in some depression trials. And so the FDA saw what happened with opioids and then they were seeing how antidepressants over long-term weren't working. And so they were just looking for solutions. So they actually fast-tracked ketamine and psilocybin and MDMA around the same time. Uh, it's just that people jumped on ketamine earlier. And I think the reason that it really, it, it got approval quicker is because it had been approved for other uses in veterinary clinics or in, you know, in, in a sedation uh, uh, for war. Like, I mean, it started around the Vietnam Wars when it was started being used. So there, there was already some 
familiarity with that substance, whereas MDMA and psilocybin, psilocybin has been schedule one since the early seventies. MDMA has been schedule one since 1984. So I think that's why ketamine, I, I don't think there was anything nefarious in terms of why it reached the public sooner. I think it was just that it, it was already legal. It wasn't a schedule one substance. Uh, my contention, my problem with it is that it just gets lumped in with other psychedelics because it's not that. Yeah. And kind of how you mentioned earlier, the Xanax studies half after, you know, eight weeks, it was head to head with the placebo. I wonder why the pharmaceutical industries just don't profit more off placebo without the side effects. There was a study. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ted Kapchick's work, uh, who is a acupuncturist actually, who said, Hey, maybe, maybe the meridians aren't why acupuncture seems to work. Let's look into this. And I really appreciate the honesty around that. And he's, he's at Harvard and he's done a number of placebo studies. And one of the most fascinating was for irritable bowel syndrome, where he actually gave people uh, a pill, a bottle that looked just like any other prescription bottle, but it was marked placebo and he told everyone it was placebo and it worked just as well as the, the pharmaceutical that was being tested. And he also did a study for low back pain where some people got placebo and then some people got whatever pain reliever was being used and they worked, you know, they, they showed the similar efficacy. And then at the end, it turns out that everyone got the placebo. It didn't matter. So people thought they might be getting pain reliever. So he's done some really good work with that. And I, I think that my, a part of me wanted to write my next book on placebo. I just don't, I have another idea that I, I want to pursue more, but I, I think that the studies, I write up for big think about placebo whenever I find new studies. I just wrote one that showed that microdosing uh, LSD and placebo produced the same effects. And that was done in the UK, that study. So I, I think that for, it especially amazes me in, the, in a crowd such as say, again, the wellness community who talk so much about the power of their mind Placebo is indicative of how powerful your mind can be on your body. And yet they're selling supplements saying things that work no better than placebo because, because again, it's all about the monetization of these substances. It's not about what it actually does to people. Right. And like, I remember, you know, years ago reading um, an article in mother Jones or something about how, you know, they tested 50%, you know, they tested supplements on the market. 50% of them didn't even have, any of the ingredients in it that they said was in it, or if they did have, you know, that herb or that, you know, vitamin or mineral, it wasn't even nowhere near the dosage that claimed on the bottle. Yeah. Um, but people still put all this, you know, um, faith, basically it's faith in these supplements. And, you know, I'm not a supplement person. I, I take it as I need it, but I've always been a little bit leery of, you know, just people, you know, selling, I don't want to say selling magic. I'm an acupuncturist. I'm an herbalist. I sell magic all the time. Cause that's what people say to me, you know, I'm like, no, that's it's steeped in something like you know, logical. And they're like, no, it's magic. And I'm like, if you believe it works, it's great. Um, I am what? glad you brought up about the TCM. Cause I do, of course, as an acupuncturist, I took issue with your episode, <laughs> natural hopes, natural fallacies. Um, and I just will say my piece. And of course, then 
you know, I'm, I was upset about it in the moment because um, I'm not a very, like I can, I can read scientific articles. I can understand research. I just don't need that for myself personally. You know, I'm definitely more of an experiential person. If I feel it and it, and I, and it works great. If I'm not feeling it and it doesn't work, I move on. So um, I just felt like maybe it just wasn't as well researched, you know, the, the, and then you didn't even interview an acupuncturist to give a side of the story of like, no, here is how people go through a rigorous four-year master's degree where we learn all the medical sciences, where we learn pathophysiology and pathology and Western case studies. And, and then to interview a naturopathic doctor, I just was like, it seemed one-sided and not very well-researched. And so that's that's my big issue with you, um, Derek, right now. <laughs> well, let's... explain to me a little bit about just why you chose to frame the the TCM episode like that, and then to not even bring a Chinese medicine practitioner on to to tell that side of the story. Well, so and the, you should have been on that week's clubhouse because a few acupuncturists came on. And when I was saying before I about totally how we had wanted, I keep wanting to be yeah. on clubhouse, but another group with some of my friends on it meets at the same time and I <laughs> miss my friends. So I always go to that one, but I, I do want to come to clubhouse and, and hang out with you guys. Well, that was a, that was a great one because of what you just expressed where a, a, a few uh, acupuncture students, acupuncturists and TCM practitioners came on to talk about exactly what we're, we're talking about now. And I'll, I'll start by saying that if you think about the episode and this is Julian, after that episode, Julian made a great point to me is that people don't always hear what you say. They hear how they feel. And I think this is indicative of that. And I'm not saying that we did it perfectly. And, and, and the, I'll explain the series of events that led to that. I had interviewed Richard Lacani a few years ago and for my personal podcast, which was nowhere nearly as popular as Conspirituality has become. So I was like, this is a really important interview that I did. And I wanted to highlight it. I wanted to go back to it because he says some things that I think the broader wellness community isn't thinking about, which is the ecological impact of the substances that they're purchasing or the industries that they're involved with. So the segment was specifically on this Totuaba bladder that is harvested in the Gulf of, not the Gulf of Mexico, in the um, Sea of Cortez, which is about two hours south of me in Los Angeles on the Mexican border. And they, because the Mexican cartel and the Chinese mafia are working together, they're selling this unproven cure and they're destroying the entire ecosystem because the totoaba are necessary for there. They're also killing the vaquitas, which are the smallest whales in the, in the world. And every other animal that depends on them is dying now. So you're watching an ecosystem collapse. These bladders are sold for $80,000 a bladder in China to cure arthritis, which is not proven, has never been shown to have efficacy. So my segment specifically talked about the ecological problems based on that. And then I also mentioned um, the, the uh, collapse of elephant populations, the collapse of tiger populations for unproven cures. And later on, I actually found out there's a serious problem with turtle populations. And these are all for unproven TCM cures. 
So in that segment alone, that was the focus of it, not acupuncture, not anything else. But my argument was, if this industry is creating this ecological problem and we can look at China and their record on the environment, not that America's is very good either, but China's record is horrendous. And we can see a mindset of humans just consuming without understanding the consequences of their actions. So that was the broader segment that I had produced for that episode. Now, from there, we got into a conversation about the segment. And since most people's um, entryway into TCM in America is in acupuncture, the conversation just kind of went to that because Matthew and Julian don't know as much about everything I had expressed. They were just learning about it after I had produced that segment. So we started talking about acupuncture, which I have some, you know, uh, familiarity with. I have done probably 25, 30 sessions in my life, and then I've studied it a bit. And so the conversation, the, the open conversation part of our show just went to that because it was something the three of us could talk about in some capacity, whereas we weren't really going to talk about the tatuava. So that was the transition. And, and maybe it wasn't the cleanest transition. So I will, I will admit that. The naturopathic interview had been done uh, two months prior and we were sitting on it for an episode where we talked about the broader space of, um, of, of some of the topics. And so that's why we decided to use it for that week. So you actually have three different conversations that had happened in that episode, as we often do. I mean, the ticker is specifically meant for, for just one topic and then our broader conversations usually flesh out into something else. Uh, and that's the nature of our podcast. So I just wanted to distinguish that those were actually three different segments. So I believe that your contention and other people's contention was specifically with the acupuncture open dialogue conversation. Is that correct? You know, I guess, I think it was the blending of the three together that I had issue with because you know, Chinese medicine has been studied, you know, for I don't know how many thousands of years um, in a population of people um, that have written textbooks about it that go back 2,500 years. To, so to keep saying that these things like are unfounded or, you know, not based in any fact, just kind of belittles, you know, thousands of years of a belief system that has nothing to do with the current politics in China. So I take issue with that. And then it also was just like belittling an entire medical profession of people worldwide that use, that utilize Chinese medicine as a science and an art to work with people through their long-term health goals, but, you know, but be it like on a mental, physical or spiritual level. Um, and then to throw in the naturopath as like, then they're more of a position of a true medical professional, as opposed to having an acupuncturist or Chinese medicine practitioner. So I kind of took issue with all of it. Well, <laughs> but you're so right, again, but, but your podcast is great at initial, at initiating that emotional response. I mean, I'm fiery anyway, anybody who knows me knows that I like, I love to get like, you know, I love the hard conversations because it does elicit a response in me. And I think 
there are too many people who are numbing their feelings and just like, oh, I'm going to take this so I don't feel this way as opposed to like, no, let's feel this way, but then let's have dialogue about it. So I've been wanting to talk to you so I could be like, I was fucking pissed, but I'm so glad I get to talk to you about it. (laughs) (laughs) But see, here's again, this is, we're talking about emotional reactivity about it though, is because it's something obviously personal to you. And I understand that the format of our podcast is like that every week. But it that week it stuck out to you because it's something that is meaningful to you. And again, which is understandable, but we do that every week. There's very few weeks where we have one cohesive topic. There are some, but there's very few weeks where we just talk about one topic over. We always blend different topics, but that one jumped out at you because you're invested in it. And Absolutely. again, it's understandable, but it's it's actually the format of our podcast. So I just want to I want to make that clear. Which and, you discussed in Snark Tank, which I thought was great because that came like right after I was upset with you guys. And then it's like, no, part of our cynicism and snark is like, you know, to me, I was like, well, is it part of the entertainment of the podcast, or is that truly how you guys? Because, you know, we, you know, for entertainment purposes, we try to make things, you know, lively so people come back and listen, you know. Um, So for you guys and your like cynicism, I think it's authentic. But is it also part of the draw because controversy sells? You know, the founding of the podcast was me asking Julian and Matthew to come onto my podcast to have a conversation about the about conspirituality. And it it really has. I mean, we've definitely uh, expanded in a lot of ways, but that remains. We're on Slack seven days a week talking about the next week's episode. We're working out segments. We're talking, you know, we're debating. Like there's a lot of things that don't make it. There's things we don't agree on. And, but the heart of it is that I enjoy talking to those two guys, period. And that's why it's become a part of my life. So anything that you hear during the dialogues are not planned. We have some parameters of topics we're talking about, but it, it's pure authenticity. It's, it's us having a conversation as we would in private. And that's what we wanted to make public. But I don't want to, I also don't want to lose this because to do with uh, TCM though, during that segment of the open conversation, I make the point, and I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this, that when you said a moment ago, it's been studied for, you know, thousands of years, yes and no. I mean, Hippocrates, we, we don't use the humors anymore because we figured out germ theory. So the humors weren't relevant. Now, a lot of what Hippocrates did or his, his students did uh, to create the corpus are still relevant. Like for example, Hippocrates was the first person in Western medicine to say disease doesn't have a divine origin. And that, you know, set off a mindset that resonated out from there. So there, there was, even within the humors, there's some understanding about the metaphors of them. But once germ theory was discovered, we realized that the humors were no longer relevant. And I would say that the same thing happened in traditional Chinese medicine, where you can't, you can't look at something that's 3,000 years old. And then if there's better standards, that's what evolution is. If there's better standards to judge things by now, we have to go by those. And so the point that I made regarding acupuncture is I, I had great sessions. I enjoyed it uh, when I had it. It was very relaxing in a number of ways. Now, was any curative effects 
well, why I went there, it never actually cured why I went there. So that's why I stopped going. But if there was any positive effects, was it because of the meridians or was it because of the adenosine that was rushing to the point of contact in my skin? If it's the, if it's the adenosine, great, then let's use that as a model for creating better practices around acupuncture. But if the meridians are only a metaphor and it's not an actual thing that we can track, then why are we holding on to that? And why don't we look at what actually proves efficacious? And that's generally the mindset that I take around all of these practices. Well, I mean, I feel like describing it like the, you know, humoral theory isn't quite adequate because Chinese medicine is still living and being practiced in, you know, countries all over the world today. I went and studied in China um, for a few weeks in the summer while I was a student at Five Branches University. And we saw like Chinese medicine being used alongside Western medicine. So we would be in the, the teaching clinic and somebody would come to the medical doctor and they would get their list of complaints. They'd send them off to an MRI, to an x-ray, to whatever. And then they would, you know, based on that, there would be a Chinese medicine doctor doing a pattern diagnosis and just, and prescribing herbal medicine while they're also a medical doctor to, to become an acupuncturist in China, you have to go to med, med, excuse me, you have to go to medical school first. And if you want to be an herbalist in China, you have to go to medical school first. So you learn all of the same things that a, a Western doctor, quote unquote, Western doctor learns. And then you go and study the traditional Chinese medicine because they know there's more efficacy with the allopathic medicine if they use things like herbs, acupuncture. There's Twena doctors that do the massage, you know, and they do things like chiropractic work with bone setting and things like that. But all of these people are medical doctors first. So to say that I don't think they would be spending the time and money on this classical medicine if it wasn't actually working. And then we may not be studying things like herbs and meridians and energy and things like that. But in Asian countries, they are studying those things. Not that I put any sort of basis of truth on much of anything that comes out of China that comes out of communist China, but something that has come out, you know, that predates any sort of political system that's in place today. And there's tons of herbs that I won't use and Western and Chinese herbalism, because, you know, everything we do on this planet is just, you know, it's too much. It's being abused. It's being overused. It's being distorted, you know, for profit. Um, I just feel like to say it's not this living medicine that's still occurring and still being studied. Um, it's just not true. Oh, you know, I, I've been to I, China. I totally see how they're using herbs alongside pharmaceuticals to treat things like hepatitis C. They're using acupuncture alongside chemotherapy when, um, when somebody has cancer. I mean, in the Anderson Cancer Center here in Texas, well, not here, I'm in Oklahoma, but in Texas, um, I went there for a weekend workshop on acupuncture and was like, here's one of the biggest research hospitals for cancer in the world and they have an acupuncture and an herbal section and we have protocols that I've used on my own clients 
for peripheral neuropathy from chemotherapy that actually improve because I've not only seen it, but then they have this research at a hospital in Texas that is doing it. So I just feel like it just wasn't well researched. And like you said, now that I know it was an old conversation about not about really Chinese medicine, but about the fact that, you know, unfortunately ecosystems are dying for profit, which happens in every industry. Um, you know, I guess that's my take on it. Right. But I, I never said it wasn't a living system. Well, you never said it was a, you never said it wasn't a living system, but just, you know, to say that there was no research or things being done on it, um, that at least satisfied, you know, our Western double blind placebo controlled study. Right. But I didn't say that either because I, I just brought up the, the fact of adenosine, which is, which is, seems to be the most, uh, besides electrical acupuncture, seems to be the most uh, efficacious version of it. So, or why, why that is why it could have some anti-inflammatory effects. So see, again, I mean, it's, it, these are, it's challenging because you're, you're dealing with things that were said, but when you're so invested in something, again, I understand the, the hesitancy I have, I take no issue with things that work. I'll put it that way. Like if things work for people, that's wonderful, but I would put some of what is put forward by traditional Chinese medicine, like the COVID herbs that are being sold in Canada right now illegally to cure COVID with no actual proof of that, I would put that up there with the supplement selling. Like, it's just not true. Oh, absolutely. You can't say, I mean, as acupuncturists, we were taught from the very first day that we can't say anything cures anything. Like, that's all part of it. We can't say acupuncture cures anything or herbs cure anything because there's no basis in that. I mean, there's no research to support that. Plus, that's not our place to say it can cure. Like, so if anybody says anything cures anything, I'm calling BS on it. You know, you can't say chemotherapy cures cancer. It definitely uh, kills cancer. Yeah, it helped my, it helped other my things cancer. And definitely, and definitely is great. It's not, I'm not, I, I have nothing against chemotherapy. Don't get me wrong. Um, I'm just saying that like, I've seen chemotherapy kill people before the cancer would have killed people. Just like I see, you know, every, everything is individual. So it's hard to, you know, make generalizations about any medicine. And I think that is part of what's going on today is there's, and I do it myself. I'm compl- I, no, not in denial about that, about these sweeping generalizations um, that I just, you know, I don't think should be made. Although, like I said, I make them all the time. <laughs> well, <laughs> as, as, as stated again, like Paul Offit said something that has always stuck with me. He's like, there's no such thing as alternative medicine. There's medicine that works. And then there's <laughs> the rest of it, which doesn't work. And so uh, I am all for things that work. Uh, I'm just I just take a certain level of skepticism into a lot of practices. I mean, you brought up chemotherapy. Um, I've had it for my cancer. It was preventative mostly because the tumor wasn't removed and it hadn't metastasized, but I felt that it would be good to, 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 to give it another, to give it at least one round to, you know, help to make sure it doesn't spread. And, um, 
all of the oncologists that I've ever talked to about it would readily say that chemotherapy is not the best option, but it's the best we have right now for a lot of cancers. And we hope to not have to use it in the future as we better understand it. And I, I, that, that I think is the right mindset to take to any healing modality. Uh, you, you work with what you have and then if better procedures or therapeutics come up later on, then you go with them. And I feel like specifically going back to wellness, a lot of people romanticize so-called ancient remedies because they've been used before. And when you're talking about something like quinine to treat malaria, well, guess what? 500 years later, it still works. And that comes from uh, at least part of it, you know, was used in China. It was in literature in China 500 years ago. So awesome. Use it. It's one of the best therapeutics. Uh, but a lot of things are not the best therapeutics. And that's what, that's what I'm trying to bring out when I discuss some of these topics. Yeah. And how, um, you know, cause on a personal level, when I, when I think about my, my personal wellness and how I react with my clients, it seems all very benign. And now we're in this space where, um, somebody like Dr. Christian Northrup, I've, I've actually just dropped the doctor from her name when I think about her personally, because to me, she's been like stripped of that title in my book. <laughs> um, but you know, it's, dangerous it can be you know I have a blog I have a podcast you know I say airy fairy things all the time because for me personally I can have that belief system and stay very grounded in reality um, because I don't know for whatever reason that's my constitution is I smell bullshit I'm not into cults I don't I'm not a joiner of things I'm very like you know but if I experience it, then I'm a believer, you know, um, and just thinking about, you know, Christian Northrop and her reach and how dangerous her, she has become um, any, I, I kind of want to wrap it up because I, I don't want to take up much of your time. I, I, I definitely honor the time that you've been here with me, but you know, because part of your, or the, the bulk of your podcast is to bring attention to, to how dangerous you know, these influencers are for those people who may be listening right now, who are more susceptible to that belief system. Are there any words of wisdom or thoughts to give them, to give them a more grounded understanding of what's going on? It's a very difficult question. I mean, it's something we've kicked back and forth over the course of the nine or 10 months we've been doing it. And there is no clear answer uh, and, f you know, the one thing that always jumps out at me is the episode with Stephen Hassan, the occult expert, where he said that the best thing you can do is if it's somebody that's close to you to try to remind them of the person they were before they started sliding into these conspiracy theories, like be there for them. And then if, and when they're ready to come out of it, just be there for them as a friend. And I think one of the hardest aspects of of the digital world is that you feel like you want to affect a lot of people and you can, it is possible, but you can't take personally the people you don't know, or you can't change because 
the, the humans aren't built for these communication systems that we have. We are still small group creatures, animals. And while I love technology in so many ways, my emotional energy is going to go into my wife and my family and my closest friends because those are the people that I can have a real world impact on and, and, and share this life with. And the people who reach out on Twitter, I mean, it's great talking to people sometimes, but when there's unnecessary tension and emotionality brought into it, I have a, I have a barrier with that because if I don't know the person, I, I understand I'm not going to change them. So I don't try. I will debate, which I'm fine with. And I think, again, that's healthy, whether it's in means like this and we talk through things or, or even in text means like on Twitter or Facebook, I will debate. But at the end of it, I'm not going to get swept up in the emotional aspects of it because it, it doesn't do good for my own mental health. And I can see how these technologies allow for greater anxiety and depression, and they certainly do. And I think that people just need to learn how to protect themselves from that because it's still just you're reaching across ways that we really were not uh, designed for. And so the only advice I can give is try not to get too caught up on what's on the screen and have a lot more awareness of, of the people in your immediate environment that actually matter to you uh, and be willing to have, engage in even challenging conversations with them because that at the end of it is going to be your, your best course of action for your own sanity, really. Yeah, absolutely. I spent a lot of the first part of the year um, really frustrated with people, you know, people that I love and, you know, would never want to not have in my life, of course. And then come, slowly coming to the fact of, yeah, not taking it personally. And that's, that's um, I think that's what we all do, especially, you know, when it comes to, like you said, those topics of health and wellness and well-being. Those are the topics we take the most uh, personally, you know, because it is an affront to a belief system that, um, you know, we should be able to have dialogue about without just writing somebody off completely. So um, for those who want to find out more about you, I'm, if you want to do any sort of promoting, I haven't given out a website or an email or even how they can listen to the Conspirituality podcast. So if you want to share anything like that, please do. Uh, everything that I do is linked off of DerekBarris.com. So you can find it from there. I, that's just a one page website where I have links to everything from there. So that's, that's the best uh, place. And Conspirituality is on every major podcast, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, we put it everywhere. So it's pretty easy to find as long as you know how to spell it. <laughs> yeah. And of course, autocorrect is going to try to spell it wrong. <laughs> like, like, you know, we'll get it. Might as well be trying to say fuck. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, anything else you want to share with us before I let you go, Derek? No, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it. And I appreciate that you reached out to me, even, even though we angered you on one of the weeks. I, I, I definitely appreciate you willing to talk through that and, and just have that conversation. So thank you. Hey, you know, I just want to say that wasn't the only week you angered me, but <laughs> I love the conversation. And like 99.9% .9 of the time, I am like, yes, yes, yes. And so I like it when 
I'm putting a little bit of discomfort because I think that's where we grow and that's where we learn and, and we get to talk to cool people. And so thank you for being here. Thank you, Jessica. Have a great day. You too. Take care. you enjoyed this episode of the herb walk with jessica baker and my interview and discussion with Derek barris if you have not listened to the conspirituality podcast yet i encourage you to take a listen definitely give yourself a cup of nervine tea and be prepared to either um, really resonate with what they say or be challenged by what they have to say And if you find it challenging to hear some of the things they have to say about the wellness space, um, I encourage you to really just dig deep and and listen with an open heart and an open mind and without reservation or judgment. Because it's really important, these conversations and understanding those of us with a lot of things in common, we may also have a lot of things that we disagree with, and that is okay. Okay. And I think more than ever, we need to hear that it's okay to have difficult conversations with people we don't always agree with and be open to the information that they share. I, for one, love the Conspirituality podcast, um, not because I agree with everything that's being said, but because I think a lot of it we need to hear. And pretty much 99% of the time, I do agree with where these guys are coming from. So really just want to encourage you to have an open mind and have the hard discussions that are really hard, um, that are not easy to have with those that we disagree with right now. Thank you always for listening to The Herb Walk with Jessica Baker. Um, Please like, share, subscribe, tell me what you think, and always just share the love of plant medicine however you can. Thank you.